the optimal life. Doing well. So big news last night. Uh, Alex Murdoch. How do you say it? Is it Alec or Alex? Well, you know, good question. Um, it's written Alex. I don't know why people, it seems like a lot of people, uh, lawyers at the trial and so on. Some people called him Alex. Some people called him Alec. I know it was kind of annoying. Because <laughs> I watched the documentary on, on Netflix and he yeah. refers to himself as Alec, A-L-E-C, you would think, but uh -huh. it's spelled Alex. So, okay. So I guess it's just one of those tomato, tomato things, huh? Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. So uh, Alec Murdaugh was on trial for the murders of uh, his wife and his son. Before we get to the trial, before we get to the, the some of your thoughts and observations, give us a little background on exactly who Carol Lieberman is, your expertise, your background, et cetera. Okay. Um, well, I am a psychiatrist, an MD, and also I have a master's in public health. And I do a number of things as a psychiatrist, of course, seeing patients, but um, also I work as a forensic psychiatrist and expert witness. And um, also I write books and I do television and radio and I have two, I have a radio show and a podcast of my own. And um, I'm on, you know, all different um, outlets. You've been on all the major networks. I've seen your clips on Fox You've probably been on every single network that there is. Is that is that fair to say? <laughs> yes, unless they've managed <laughs> most of them. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, why? Why did did it one or two of them rub you the wrong way? No, no, no. I was just okay. going to try to make a bad joke, like <laughs> all of them, unless they tried to elude me. Kind of oh, there you go. I see. I see. So some of your cases, looking at your website, for people that are listening here, uh, just I want people to really understand um, you really are the go-to expert on, on so many criminal and civil cases when it comes to forensics. First off, what exactly is that? What is forensic psychology? Psychiatry. I'm um, sorry, psychiatry. Yeah. It, um. Well, forensic is legal, anything related to legal issues and psychiatry. So um, people who are forensic psychiatrists, and there aren't really that many of us, but primarily what um, the work is, is working as an expert witness. And so I have worked in hundreds of um, civil and criminal cases, including murder cases, everything, everything from dog bites to murder. Um, Unfortunately, fortunately, only one dog bite case that I can think of. Uh, and so what it means is, you know, I would be called by an attorney, either on the side of the defendant or the side of the plaintiff or the prosecutor. And I would um, examine the significant parties involved in the case. And I would come to a psychiatric evaluation, a conclusion, an idea like if it was a civil case, it would be... Um, did this accident or this event, you know, whether it's sexual harassment or a car accident or whatever, did this uh, have a psychological impact on the person? Mm. Because they would be claiming emotional distress in a civil suit. In a criminal suit, it's different, of course. Um, there, typically, I work for the defense. And um, I would be like, I'll tell you about a cool, my most recent case. Uh, well, recent in the sense that I was just in court for it, but actually it was a case that started in 2019, and that was the Nipsey Hussle case. Do you know who Nip Nipsey Hussle is? Or sure, was? the rapper that was murdered in broad daylight. Absolutely. Exactly. Exactly. He didn't have to put it like that. <laughs> 
I mean, that is true. What you said. Uh, wasn't that, isn't that what happened? He was murdered right yes, outside of, on, by his car in broad daylight in the parking lot. By a shop. Yes. Yes. Um, and so I was called by the um, defense attorney who was ori originally Christopher Darden, you know, who was one of the prosecutors in the OJ case. Right. And um, I, he had uh, retained me to go and examine the man's name is Eric Holder to examine him. So I went several times to the um, men's uh, the twin towers, men's jail in Los Angeles, downtown Los Angeles and examined him. And I came to the conclusion that um, that he uh, should be not guilty by reason of insanity. Um, but meanwhile, Christopher Darden dropped out of the case because he had been getting threats um, to him and his family because, needless to say, Nipsey Hussle was a lot more popular than Eric Holder. Mm. And... Um, and so they people didn't like, you know, uh, Chris Darden trying to defend him. So uh, the so Eric wound up with a a public defender, and then she um, dropped out, not because of the of, well, I'm not really sure, but uh, and then it got turned over to another public defender, and public defenders in general, you know, they have so many cases they're not really able to do a very in-depth job and so um he was not he didn't want to go for trying to do not guilty by reason of insanity he thought it would be too difficult to convince the jury of that um although nipsey i mean although eric holder had a long history he was he was 29 at the time that he killed nipsey hustle and he had been uh, diagnosed and had a mental illness for the past the prior 10 years so and there were hospital records uh, thousands of pages of psychiatric hospital records. So it wasn't like somebody who, you know, is claiming to be um, insane at the time of the crime. He really, he really had records to prove it. And of course, my examination as well. Anyhow, to try to make a long story short. Um, so the attorney did try to, uh, he argued manslaughter, and the jury didn't buy that. And so Eric got convicted of first degree murder. And then, of course, things were delayed because of COVID, and he just had his sentencing um, this past last week. Right. Uh, and I, I was asked by the defense attorney to come down and read my. I wrote a statement for his sentencing hearing, and um, you know, put in all kinds of things about his history and all these different psychiatric hospitalizations and medications, and he even had shock therapy. And he had three different um, brain injuries. I mean, you know, this was legit. And the the judge um, came in clearly with his mind made up uh, that he was not really going to listen to mitigating factors. And um, I took the stand to read my statement. And the prosecutor jumped up. Uh, he, he had the judge um, have me give him my statement. And um, he didn't want it read, you know, not only were there people in the gallery, but of course, uh, lots of media were there. And he didn't want people to hear about loud about, you know, all these things that uh, would ex would be mitigating factors. And so anyhow, he got that. So he um, 
He went up to the judge. He made an objection. The judge was looking at the report. The defense attorney tried to explain why this was necessary. And so bottom line, the judge claimed in his, when he was pronouncing the sentence, he claimed that he took my report into consideration. But, you know, he had only, he barely, I mean, he looked at it. He did. But it was in the context of this uh, prosecutor in his ear telling him all the reasons why, you know, he shouldn't let me read it. Anyway, uh, not that it wasn't accurate. He just didn't want people to know, especially the media. Mm-hmm. So, um, so uh, that was kind of the end of that. And the judge threw the book at him. He gave him 60 years to life. Um, and, and you know, the, the problem is, first of all, that Eric was failed by the mental health system because none of these hospitalizations were long enough um, to actually get to the bottom of, to find the right medication and to get to the bottom of his illness. He had schizophrenia, but there were all different kinds of descriptions of it. And to find the right medication or combination of medications and 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 to give him some psych- psychotherapy to help him deal with it. They were not at all um, long enough to do that. You know, and that's the way it is these days. Um, people don't get kept in the hospital long enough to do any significant work. Mm. So... Then he got failed by the justice system, who clearly the judge was influenced by the same thing that uh, Chris Darden was influenced by, you know, and the same thing that the jury um, in the, uh, what was his, George Floyd uh, case was influenced by. I mean, it's very intimidating. Well, I was going to um, actually ask you about that um, yeah. as well, Carol. So, so Darden's intimidated. You're saying the judge maybe be intimidated. How about you? Do you ever fear for your safety <laughs> in situations like this? Yes, um, I did. I mean, you know, I didn't just go um, waltzing down there with no, no, uh, nary a thought. Um, but, you know, the thing was this. Uh, now, it's interesting because this happened. Nipsey Hussle was killed in 2019. That was before George Floyd. And so when I took the case, I didn't really, you know, I wasn't thinking anything uh, about, you know, how, well, I mean, of course, then when Chris Darden quit, (laughs) that did make me begin to think about it. But it's still, you know, I I wanted to see justice done. I get very, um, I felt I had a commitment, um, you know, to to tell the truth, to tell Mm. this background, to tell what was really going on. And yes, um, you know, of course, of course, um, there was, is some risk, but, you know, I mean, it was kind of interesting. The judge didn't let me read it out loud, which, um, which in a way, um, you know, didn't let a lot of people hear it. Of course, I write a column in the, um, a column called, called Inside the Criminal Mind in, um, in uh, frontpagedetectives.com. And I had to write my latest column, just this just uh, a couple of days ago, it came out uh, about this story that I'm telling you. And mm. so, yes, you know, people know it's me. And then they uh, I put some of since the since my statement became a public document, I put some of that in my column. So, you know, sure. it's not like I'm uh, I mean, you know, they could find me. But um, but, you know, I mean, I would hope that people I I actually also I include this in my column and I was going to say this if I had the chance at the I mean, I was on the witness stand, you know, I had read the first paragraph and that was it uh, when the prosecutor stopped me. But I did have in mind to say at the end that um, 
that, first of all, my condolences to the friends and family of Nipsey Hussle. And also that nothing that I said was meant to diminish in any way the tragedy of Nipsey Hussle's death. And I mean that, you know, I'm, this has nothing to do with Nip Nipsey Hussle in, in this. It has to do with explaining who this person was um, who killed him and why he should be afforded some uh, compassion. Right. Yeah, that's a very interesting, very sensitive place that you put yourself. Uh, high level, high stress, high stakes. I assume before you take the stand, it's the same butterflies every single time. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there were a few more butterflies for this yeah, one. <laughs> of course, yeah. You're, you're, you're. When it when it comes to personal safety, the butterflies are a little more extreme, a little more intense. Uh, but you know, looking at your website too, uh, I want to get to the Murdoch case, but I there are some other things here, uh, real quick. I see that you were a uh, expert witness for Jose Baez, and I know I remember him from, of course, the Casey Anthony case. Yes, yes, and I was. I couldn't believe he pulled that one off. So. Jose Baez is a phenomenal attorney, but what did you, what was that case about the Florida versus Roman? What were you uh, testifying to? I was testifying on behalf of uh, the defense. You know, he, Jose Baez was representing the defense um, of this young teenage um, woman who had, who was being accused, being charged with, um, the fact that with I remember now if it was I don't I don't can't remember now if it was murder or I mean it was the, the gist of it was that she uh they blamed her a, a girl in this girl's class um committed suicide climbed up to a tower in Florida this was in Florida and she climbed up to a tower and she jumped and there was this question of whether the um young women woman who I was uh, defending, so to speak, um, what she had written some things on social media, as did another uh, teenager also, who, um, you know, all, classmates, um, written things to this girl who jumped off the tower <laughs> um, that were considered bullying. And so, um, so she was charged with that and, and in some sense, you know, blamed for the death. Um, I don't think it was murder. I'm trying to remember what the actual charge was. But anyway, it had to do with these. With like these uh, involuntary manslaughter or something along those lines, probably. Something like that. Yeah. And really, this girl, you know, she had her own story. I mean, that's the thing. These people, not that it excuses anything. I mean, not that there's an excuse for killing somebody else or causing somebody to commit suicide and all that. I mean, I'm not saying these people should just um, walk away with nothing. But, um, but you know, like in this case, it was very interesting. They each had their stories. The girl who jumped had lots more going on in her life that was wrong than a few... Um, sort of mean girls kind of statements on social media. Right, right, right. right. And, and also the teen who who I was defending um, had problems in her life. Uh, and and there, was some, there was some provocation. The girl who ultimately jumped um, had done some things to this girl and the other one who were writing mean girl things on social media. So, you know, I think they did, um, they were sent... Um, 
I think the other girl had done worse than the girl that I was defending. So they were punished, or she, the one I was defending was punished to some degree, but it was very mild. And um, so I flew out to Florida for all of this to examine the girl and to, um, and to do a press conference with Jose Baez, which was very interesting <laughs> and, and to test and to talk at the trial. Um, what, why, let me just interrupt you, Carol. Why was the press conference uh, interesting? <laughs> well, um, you know, I mean, it was just interesting to, um, I mean, he's a very commanding presence and, um, and he is an, of course, an excellent lawyer. And it was, um, this was it was just you know inter- i mean there were a ton of press i'm trying yeah so the theatrics to... the the spectacle of the event exactly see. exactly yeah, I, I see what you're saying so you're, you're involved in a lot of different things criminal civil i see you've done stuff with nevada versus floyd mayweather domestic violence were you were you for floyd on that one yes you were the girl was uh um a uh um what do you call that a she wanted a gold digger the girl was a gold digger and she had kind of made up the story. What a shock. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's none of those these days. Come on, Carol. <laughs> what do you mean? Um, well, yeah, this is uh very, very interesting, very intriguing. So let's get to it. You, you, um, you've studied the, the trial, the verdict came out yesterday. He was found guilty. He was actually sentenced this morning, which is perfect timing to bring you on, uh, to two consecutive life sentences, I believe is what it was. But, um, so talk to us a little bit, just an overview of, of the trial itself, of the case itself. I mean, when you're sitting there watching this, Carol, what are th- some of the thoughts and feelings that you had uh, starting the way that you were feeling towards Alec Murdoch? I was thrilled that he was found guilty, and I was double thrilled that he was given life sentences without the possibility of parole. Um you know, the more I saw of it, and I did have to watch a lot of it. Actually, at the beginning, I wasn't really all that interested because it just seemed kind of complicated and boring and all that. But as it went on, I mean, he became a riveting character because he was lying. Um, you know, the whole case was was really fascinating. Um, you know, but he he did himself in in a number of ways. Um, he he was basically a spoiled brat who, you know, he was, of course, raised in a very affluent family, a very prestigious family, not just did they have money, but they had a lot of power. And I was just reading an article about um, his college days, that his his friends, his classmates, um, describe him as someone who was a bully, who felt like he was the number one person in the room he talked about his wealth. He talked about his family's power. Um, you know, he was really very obnoxious even back then and um, and arrogant, which is what really did him in here, too. He thought he could get away with this crime. Um, he thought he could get away with all his lies. You know, he's an addict. So uh, addicts learn how to lie very well in order to hide their addiction. Um and the only thing that, uh, and of course the prosecution did great, did a great job because you know it took the jurors uh, forty five minutes basically. I mean it was three hours, but it was forty five minutes of uh, discussion because when they took the first poll, um, nine people found him guilty, two people were thinking not guilty, and one person was undecided. And it took them forty five minutes to convince 
those people that he was guilty. So it was pretty, you know, and and he knew when he came back into that courtroom, you could tell by the way he looked and and his experience when it typically in a criminal case, the, the shorter they come back, the worse it is. Um, but he, I think one of the turning points was his insisting upon testifying. His attorneys didn't want him to testify. And he thought that he could smooth talk the jury just like he smooth talked everybody. He's been talking his way out of things his whole life, correct? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And so were you shocked when he was willing to take the stand, or did you expect it from someone that has these narcissistic behaviors? Yeah, I wasn't shocked. I did kind of think he would want to do it. He'd want a grandstand. And, but, you know, and especially because apparently in that courtroom, the jury sits very close to the witness stand, you know, in a, at at a close angle. And so they were able to see close up that he was lying, Um, you know, and, and when people, when you lie to people, I mean, even just in normal life, if you get the sense that somebody is lying to you, it makes you very angry towards them. Like how, what kind of an idiot does this person think I am? Um, and so there was that. And one of the things that I thought was really fascinating was how his attorneys, after he testified, and it was a train wreck the two days he testified, his attorneys kind of lost the wind out of their sails. They they sort of um, didn't have the same spark that they had at the beginning, you know, where they were so sure or so dedicated to getting him off. And, and, and the was- jury... Carol, I'm sorry, the jury feels that energy, correct? Yes, yes. And and especially in the closings, you know, his lawyer really, uh, uh, it was like he was barely had the energy to, to do the closing. You could tell he was just kind of, he had given up already. I heard his and, closing was very discombobbled. And the very, closing was all over the place. Yes, and very slow. And very just repeating the same stuff that that went on. Now, of course, the prosecutor repeated it, too. But with a point, you know, he was trying to put things together and and uh, like tie it up as to why they should think that he's guilty. But the um, you know, it was kind of like they were angry that that I mean, imagine they put I'm sure they put in a ton of work and. Uh, and then he screws it up. I mean, he, even if he didn't take the stand, he probably would have been found guilty anyway. But, you know, it's kind of like you put in all your, this work and your heart and, you, you know, you're trying so hard. And this guy takes the, the stand and and just uh, screws it up. Yeah, that had to be that had to be devastating. I'm shocked that they uh, that they let him go on. But I guess if he really wanted to, what can they do? Uh, what was the smoking gun for you? What was the what was the nail in the coffin moment for you? Hmm. Um, I guess in a way, the fact that, um, he, you know, he he had been trying to say all along that, um, that he only lied because of opioids, which really doesn't make any sense that he was paranoid from the opioids. And that's why he lied to sled and all of that. Um, but then when the prosecution brought on uh, the showed the video from the first uh, from the body cam of the first officer who came on the scene and he lied to him too, you know, um, then that just put the whole um, 
it, it, it just totally, I mean, it, it totally um, negated his whole case or his whole theory. And, and I think it was, they were surprised that they had that. I'm surprised that the, that the defense, I mean, they must've had the same evidence and um, they didn't really plan for that. Um, so that was it. But also one, another chilling moment was when uh, the prosecution was asking him about, um, can you tell us about, give, me, give us an example of one of your clients who you lied to face to face, you looked in the eye when you knew you were stealing their money or you had stolen their money. And, and so how were you thinking or feeling during that time? And he wouldn't answer it. He kept going around and around in circles and wouldn't answer that. And then when it came out that it was a quadriplegic <laughs> that he had done this to, in addition to lots of other people, of course, the housekeeper, you know, who, who he probably killed um, and all of that, that was uh those were just, you know, everything you heard from him. It's like you hated him more and more. Right. Yeah. And, and I think the really damaging evidence from what I saw is that he just, the fact that he lied about where he was right. moments leading up to the murder, the night of the murder, and then that cell phone footage, right? That was really key and instrumental. Yes. Showing that he was in it. the vicinity moments yeah. before the murders. Yes. Now, the one thing that the... um that the um, attorneys, his his attorneys didn't do that, I think, um, or well, no, I'm sorry, that the prosecutors didn't do that, um, I think they should have. First of all, they should have had a, a forensic psychiatrist, expert witness on the stand, you know. They should have had you there, Carol. That's I can't right, they should have. You know, they were saying that uh, he's a... Um, He's a, what do you call it, um, a, a family annihilator, a family annihilator. Mm. And, uh, but they didn't explain what a family annihilator was. So they were just kind of, what, expecting the jury to understand all of that. And the other thing is they only concentrated on the money and talking about a storm brewing and so on. Um, and really, there were other things, reasons why he... Uh, killed his son and his wife um his son you know he was furious at for getting into the boat accident uh being drunk and getting into the boat accident which is the key to why all of his financial dealings would have been exposed and the his wife um he had alex had had an affair some years ago at least one that his wife's sister told about outside of the um ears of the of the jury uh and you know when the judge had some people testify before the jury was involved um and she said that that in just recently his wife had brought that up again about this affair so he could have been worried that his wife was planning to divorce him and as his wife divorced him he would have even less money because she owned one of the their properties. And, um, you know, if she died, theoretically, it might be um, he might inherit it. You know, but he was trying to say that that would take there's all this paperwork or whatever that would take so much time. Why would he kill her? Um, but uh, but those I think they should have brought up those human aspects to it. 
Well, what would you have done? Because, Carol, a lot of times the defense people, they would be bringing you on potentially as a psychiatric evaluation for a guy like Alec. So if you were to put him through an evaluation and you did see that the drugs and, and, and some of the mental illnesses, I mean, would you would you take the stand and testify that this man, while he was clearly guilty, uh, should have been uh, received a mitigated sentence? I don't know if I would do it for him. <laughs> He's a bit too uh, arrogant. You, you, you have your own limits as well. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, it's it's uh, it's shocking to see how this unfolded in the community. You've got uh, a wife. The, the Netflix documentary is actually really good because it kind of gives you an idea of what what's going on over there. The longstanding history of this Murdoch family from the past century plus and all these different people that are influential and, and they've kind of run the shit. They've run the show for many decades. Um, but what you see here, it's so tragic because you've got the mother, her son, now the father, they're, the father's gone. The mother and son are off this, off the earth. The father's going to be gone now for the rest of his life. And you've got that one son. What's his name? Buster. Yeah, you've got one son who now literally last has, has lost his entire family. Yes, it's really sad. What happens with Buster now? Well, uh, apparently, when he got out of the courtroom after his father was uh, uh, the, after the verdict, um, he apparently collapsed, and family members, you know, took him into the car and so on. I mean, that this had to have been. Oh, I mean, it was bad enough that he lost his mother and brother, but to then have to go into the court and support his father, take the stand and say what a loving family man his father was and so on. Um, I mean, he knew even before the verdict, he knew that his father did it. You know, he just felt that. Um, Uh, Now, do we know that? I was going to ask you, I didn't see his testimony, but. Buster was testifying of the of, to his father's positive character, but do you think yes. that did did he say that he thought his father was still the culprit? No, no, he didn't say that. Okay, no. Um, but, so so this poor that... kid, so this poor kid has been. Do, do you? But you believe that he feels deep down that his dad did it? Yes, deep down. I mean, I think he was in a lot of denial, and I think the reason why he collapsed, you know, why it was such an emotional blow. Was when he was when his father was given the guilty verdict, was because it broke through his denial. Like really, you know, um, a jury has found him guilty. I think you know he he did have a lot of denial going on, but deep down he really knew. Mm. So where do, what do you what do you see happening with him now? I mean, you've been surrounded by these types of cases where people lose loved ones, they're incarcerated, uh, death, murder. Where does a kid like that go? How does he get his life back on track? Well, he's fortunate to have this girlfriend of long standing, you know, um, who he lives with. And um, she will be, hopefully, hopefully for him, she will be a nurturing uh, force in his life. Um, He... You know, I don't know where he is school-wise. There have been various reports about, I know he was thrown out of one law school because he was cheating. <laughs> you know, they carry on the family name. 
Um, mm-hmm. There was the 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 young man who Buster was supposed to have killed. You know, the man in the in the um, a gay guy who was left in the road. You know that story. I think that was in the uh, in the uh, documentary. Yeah. Um, there was a guy who was found in the road and it looked like he had been run over and somehow or other, and he was gay and somehow or other they linked him to Buster. So Buster may have killed him. Um, but that was smoothed over. Buster never got charged. Um, and of course that's another reason why he probably, uh, you know, it was, it was a shocking thing to, for his father to be found guilty because where's the Murdoch magic. And if it could go down for his father, you know, is he at risk? Are they going to come after him now for that murder? Especially since it was in the Netflix movie. Right. Um, so yeah, they, they said there was five deaths in his family's hands yes, in a very yes. short period of time. And that kid yes. was one of them. The girl and then Paul killed the girl in the boat. Mm-hmm. And, then, um, and then they have the nanny with the right, steps. They're, yeah. they're linking, besides uh, Alex, they're linking the wife to the nanny uh, in the sense that, not necessarily that she pushed the nanny down the steps, but in the sense that she called 911 and that perhaps she knew what had happened. Um, so, yes, they're a very uh, prolific family. <laughs> They are. I, I thought the the judge's um, words, Judge Clifton Newman, who presided over this case, I thought his words were extremely powerful to uh, Alec Murdaugh this morning. Um, he went through some lengthy statements, and the judge said to uh, Murdaugh um, that I something along the lines of, your wife and son must come and visit you whenever you try to sleep. Um some very, very cutting moments from the judge this morning. Looking overall at the case, any final thoughts? What could have been done differently? Uh, is it wise for the defendant to always remain silent and never take the stand? Are there exceptions? I know I'm giving you a bunch of questions. <laughs> overall kind of summary of the case and uh, thoughts about defendants taking the stand. Well, in most cases, it's not a good idea for defendants to take the stand. But in some cases, um, it is, especially if the defendant is really not guilty, you know, because that authenticity you would hope would shine through. Um, the thing that, you know, I've been hearing about how, I mean, of course, it was predictable that they would file an appeal. And apparently the lawyers have said that, his lawyers. Um and there's apparently are questioning uh, the judge letting in a lot of the economic uh, crimes, and mm-hmm. um, which is why it would even be more necessary the next time around for the prosecutors to not just talk about the the money, but um, about the personal connections. You know why he might have wanted them dead besides the money. One other thing, too, uh, Carol, before we finish it off, you are a body language expert. So when you were sitting there and watching him again, take the stand and testify, were there things in his body language that were causing red flags to go off to you or or did he handle it well overall? Um, One of the things was that, you know, and throughout the trial, actually, he kept chewing 
And it, it almost looked like he had gun, gun. That was an interesting Freudian slip. A gun in his <laughs> mouth. <laughs> he had some gunpowder there on his, on his lips. Yeah. <laughs> that he had gum uh, in his mouth. But I don't think, you know, in most courts, they do not allow you to chew gum. Um, so that kind of comes across as arrogant, too, to be honest with you. Yes. Sitting um, there on the stand. That's not a good look for someone taking the witness stand. Right. Um, so it was chewing the inside of his cheeks and, um, and also moving his tongue around a lot. And, uh, it, those were anxiety movements that reflect the anxiety that he was feeling. Sure. And, um, so, you know, when that doesn't look good for a jury, because why are you so anxious? You know, if you didn't do it, just tell us the story. Yes. Carol Lieberman, uh, fascinating uh, information. We have linked to your website uh, in the show notes. So, guys, if you guys want to take a look at expert witness forensic psychiatrist.com, that's linked in the show notes. Where else can people find you? Social, I don't know if you're on social media, uh, but anywhere else online that, that you would like people to take a look. Sure. Um, I'm on Twitter. Um, it's at Dr. Carol MD. So it's at Dr. C-A-R-O-L-E-M-D. That's where you get to see all of Carol's insightful thoughts when she's sitting around watching Nancy Grace and eating popcorn at night. I don't watch Nancy Grace. <laughs> Do you and Nancy, have you guys crossed paths? Well, I used to be on her show a lot, her television and her radio show, but she doesn't like people who disagree with her. Oh, <laughs> uh, see? Oh. Okay, well, see, we're starting to peel back some layers because when I asked you at the beginning, and uh, we said, "Is there are certain networks?" Nancy's not necessarily oh, uh, a network, but okay, we're getting somewhere here. Uh, yeah, no, <laughs> I'm thinking about that stuff at the beginning, but uh, but no, I'm not kidding about Nancy Grace. That was true. Yeah. Well, listen, you're uh, very heavily involved uh, with the, when it comes to the media, when it comes to expert witness, forensic psychiatry. Uh, really appreciate the insight today and continued success to you, Carol. Well, thank you so much.